Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. This is a place I remember first hearing about the very first time I ever traveled to New Mexico. It was before I even moved here, so 2012. I went to a restaurant and I think it was the Wex at Lomas in San Mateo and the waiter knew it was from out of town and naturally suggested, oh, here's some places you should check out. The hiking suggestion, he said, you gotta go to Tent Rocks. And sure enough, I actually went there a couple weeks later and I was thoroughly impressed with what an amazing, unique site it is. Tent Rocks has been a perennial favorite for a lot of novice hikers to see something truly, uniquely New Mexican. Maybe it's on your list of places to visit this summer, but the fact is you can't visit it this summer. It is still closed. It's been shut down now for three years since the pandemic started. Yeah, it's been no secret to locals that the Kashikatui Tent Rocks National Monument stayed closed long after the initial COVID-19 related shutdowns in 2020. And if you're not familiar with the Tent Rocks, it is a place on BLM land on the outskirts of the Cochiti Pueblo, about 45 minutes north of Albuquerque driving in a car. You can Google the name Tent Rocks and see some really remarkable images that make you think, wow, that's in New Mexico. But for those who maybe want to visit the monument for the first time or go back to see them in person, one of the big questions I sought to answer in one of my recent investigations was, why can't anyone visit the National Monument? So you might think it would be a simple answer, but this question, Gabby, it sent you down a really complicated path from everything you told me about the work that you did for this latest investigative story you published. More than I had probably expected. That's a fair assessment. In my research to find someone who really knew the significance of the Tent Rocks and could tell me a lot more about the history of the place, I found Dr. Gary Smith. So he is currently an Associate Dean of Continuous Professional Learning at the School of Medicine at UNM. He's also been at UNM since 1987, originally on the faculty with the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department. Is that right? That's correct. Thanks for being here. Pleased to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Before we jump into today's topic, I also learned another interesting nugget about you from your bio that Chris would probably appreciate. I saw that you received your PhD in geology from Oregon State University in Corvallis. That's right. Chris's hometown. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Corvallis is an amazing place. Uh, have you been back recently? Oh, gee, it's probably been about 20 years since okay. I've been in Corvallis. Yeah, I moved away from Corvallis after I graduated high school, which was 2003. So it's about about the same time. Were you at my high school graduation? I wasn't. Okay, okay, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I didn't think so, but I had to ask. But. Were you? <laughs> so I should ask you, Dr. Smith, what got you interested in geology in the first place? And what drew you to New Mexico after, you know, at least spending some time in Oregon there? Well, let's see. What's the short answer to that question? Um, you know, as a kid, I went through the dinosaur stage and, and some of those other things. But oddly enough, growing up in Ohio, I got an infatuation with volcanoes when I was in seventh grade and pretty much decided at that time I wanted to be a volcanologist. And that passion took me into my uh, geology undergrad at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And then I came into graduate work at Oregon State. 
um, did uh, research work at Mount St. Helens, which had just recently had its big eruption shortly before I started my graduate studies in Corvallis. Uh, my dissertation work was actually out uh, near some of your old stomping grounds north of Bend in mm-hmm. central Oregon. Did my PhD research there, uh, postdoctoral research up in in Washington, um, all with a, a focus on trying to understand how, when we look at the ancient geologic record of volcanic eruption in areas that have volcanic geology, not just the nature of the processes, re, that the volcanic eruption processes are recorded in the rocks, but how the landscape is changed and how rain falling on that landscape uh, denudes the recently erupted material and spreads it out and floods and debris flows, not unlike what we see in the aftermath of wildfires here in New Mexico. So a lot of my research was documenting those uh, sorts of features. And, um, you know, when you're an academic, you, you tend to, to go where the jobs are available. So I, I confess that what drew me to New Mexico was there was a job uh, to join the faculty at the University of New Mexico. But it also, immediately, I wanted to continue the same kind of research I had done in, uh, in the Northwest, but in a very different geologic context and a very different climatic context, where there's a lot less rain to fall on the volcanoes after they erupted. So the Tent Rock specifically, I know you were visiting them back in the 1980s, way before it became a national monument and before many people knew about it. Tell us about those visits. What was it like and what was your initial impression of the land there? Yeah, it's really amazing to think back to April of 1988, which was when I, um, I first went there with a graduate research assistant that I'd brought in to a project that we wanted to start in that area, uh, studying uh, geologic uh, deposits that were named the Peralta Tuff, named for Peralta Canyon, which is where Tent Rocks is located. Um, Other geologists who had worked in the region had suggested that my geologic interests and expertise would be well matched to study the geology there, which had not really been investigated in any detail. And we knew that the area we wanted to study had sort had Tent Rock sort of at its southern boundary and extended up into the canyons to the north, into the Jemez Mountains. So we decided in our initial reconnaissance, well, let's start at this place called Tent Rocks. Um, the road was not paved then. It was very rough, um, required four-wheel drive in places. And But when you, for those that have been to Kashikatui Tent Rocks, you know that you you start down the road and you almost wonder, is this the place that I'm supposed to be going to? Because the, the spectacular landscape is in a very small area and you don't really appreciate that it's there until you're right on top of it. And so just, you know, driving up and just stepping out of the car and looking up, it was like, wow, what a place. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, I do remember how striking it was to see the landscape and then to immediately realize that the opportunity for, for learning from the geology there was, was very strong as well. So you're going out there as well. I think before many people probably saw this and that's gotta be cool to think back to those memories because now when you see it, um, man, we'll get to this, but there's a lot of interest there for obvious reasons. But I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when did the word start to spread that you think, this place was something that people should go out and check out for themselves. That's a good question, Chris, because you're right. When we were initially working there in 88, 89, even into, I think, um, 
the summer of 1990, um, we would rarely see anybody there. Um, you might come across, you might see one other hiking party coming through on a weekend. And, and that was pretty much it. It was clearly not a spot that was well known. It was probably a little bit of word of mouth, and, and that was it. Um, and then it started picking up, I would say around 1990, which I think is also the time that the BLM actually started um, blocking off some of the off-road trails that had been used by ATVs and honestly by us when we had been originally there doing our research before that. Because what we didn't realize was that in 1987, um, the area had been designated formally as an area of critical environmental concern by the BLM, but they didn't start sort of posting signs and restricting access and so forth until I think around 89 or 90. But, but it was interesting. I don't think it was their presence to do more there that attracted people. It was my understanding that it appeared in a day hiking guide from Santa Fe about that time. And we noticed suddenly, wow, we're, you know, we kind of have to be, when we're trying to do geologic observations in the slot canyon, we have to keep moving aside to let people through. Um, and that was, was unexpected and very different from our experiences in the first couple of years there. So that just that one mention of it in a hiking guide back in like the late 80s, 90s. Yeah, pre-internet. Yeah, pre-internet spread the word. When the word did get out a bit, there were early concerns, like you said, about preserving the land. The Pueblo de Cochiti sees this as a sacred place, but it's also millions of years old and there's geological interest and scientific interest there. What were the early efforts like to preserve the land? Yeah, it was interesting. Once we saw the area of critical environmental concern um, designation signs up, we realized that we would need to work with the BLM to continue to get appropriate access and to do geologic sampling. And so at that point, we started working with folks here in the Albuquerque BLM office who took an immediate interest in what we were doing and learning because um, they were impressed that we had documented so much interesting and unique geologic information there that they would want to be able to incorporate into their management plans and ultimately were incorporated into the documentation for the National Monument status and subsequently worked with them on uh, creating interpretive signs and so forth for the trails. So the, the BLM folks um, appreciated like anybody would when they first walked up there that this was a very unique place. But um, it was great to have the opportunity to collaborate with them because then we had the scientific information from the geological standpoint, at least, that could help them with their management plans, with their future plans for, for conserving it as a very unique scientific place. So as I understand, you were part of that work to help draft the wording for the National Monument, essentially. And, and the BLM, it sounds like, approached you to do that work. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what was that process like? This was really at, right at the end of President Bill Clinton's term, just before George W. Bush takes office, and, and one of the final acts, essentially, of his, of his presidency. What was that process like? Did it feel really hasty to kind of get it done because we know that presidents kind of do that at their end of their term. They, they find areas to protect and they say, let's do it now. 
Right. And I was sort of at the periphery of it. I'm sure uh, someone from the BLM can tell you more about how just how chaotic it was. I certainly did get the impression when they reached out to me and said that um, the Secretary of the Interior was interested in having proposals brought forward for the president to uh, apply the Antiquities Act of 1906 to designate some national monuments. And the BLM in particular had forwarded a list of areas of critical environmental concern that they thought um, should be at the top priority for national monument status, and that Tent Rocks was on that list. But they needed to be able to document it in a way that was consistent with the Antiquities Act which a lot of folks mistakenly think because of the word antiquities is just meant to preserve historic sites, or archaeological sites. But in the wording of the bill, it says, are other places of extraordinary scientific interest. And so the BLM folks realized that that was going to be the piece that was going to have to be sort of exploited in order to get the monument designation through. So they said, so Gary, you know, you got all the geology you got to help us sell this for its unique uh, scientific interest. Uh, and yeah, the, the fuse was, a, had a, was fairly short, but it was, was fun to be able to participate with them on that and, and, uh, and provide context for what was there and what made it important to preserve. You mentioned when we last spoke that when the presidential proclamation was signed in 2001 by President Bill Clinton, and the Tent Rocks were officially named a national monument, it was kind of likely a double-edged sword, right? Like this means presumably more resources go into the preservation efforts there, but it also means way more foot traffic because people are going to see this listed as a monument and want to come visit, right? Yeah, I, I do feel that probably the concerns um, from Pueblo de Cochiti and the BLM about the management of the, of the site has arisen from the fact that, as I mentioned, you know, in the late 80s, I would guess there were maybe a couple hundred people a year you yeah. know, were through there. Wow. Um, and by, um, you know, I don't know exactly what the numbers were at the time of the monument designation at 2000 because they didn't have a formal... Um, fee station or our check-in location, but it was probably well up into the thousands per year. And of course, it's subsequently blown up to be 150,000 or more visitors a year. And and I, I, I think the only way to kind of ex- understand how the numbers change that way is by recognition of it as a, as a place to go. And once there's a spot on a map that's called a national monument, and it's, you know, it's close to I-25, it's, it's close to Albuquerque, Rio Rancho, Santa Fe, for the locals to enjoy, as well as for tourists visiting that area. It got heavy promotion in a lot of the state tourism, um, promotional materials. And so, yeah, the whole idea of a national monument, particularly designated the Antiquities Act, is about preservation. But it, I think, you know, while that does provide some resources for that purpose, um, closing off uh, a lot of the area that would be most fragile to foot traffic, closing down the old off-road trails, uh, closing it down to, to um, gun use because people had gone out there and used the hoodoos as target practice. Right. Oh, gosh. Um, and, and, and then facilities that help deal with the folks coming, parking lots. Uh, toilet facilities, picnic tables, and so forth were all were all built as a part of that. But yeah, I think it goes both ways. You, 
the monument really is designated for preservation, but particularly when it's in an accessible populated area, boy, then it really draws in the crowds that threaten uh, the resources that are there. I think one of the things that I noted about Tent Rocks too was that it's such an amazing thing to look at. You know, you're not only just looking at it from the outside, you're right in there. You're going through that slot can. You are in the mix of what it is. And so there really has been, up until obviously the closure, tremendous access through the wondrous place it still remains to be. Gabby shared some of the numbers in her story, uh, which we can link to in our show notes, of course, here. But after the proclamation visitation, as we talked about, it really went up. In 2000, Tent Rocks recorded 14,674 visitors. In 2001, that jumped to 25,000 annual visitors with the presidential proclamation. And then since then, visitation, it soared even more than 100,000 people a year before the COVID shutdown took place in 2020. So are those numbers surprising to you to hear that just exponential growth? The, um, the exponential growth, in a sense, doesn't surprise me just based on what I you know, saw myself. But I appreciated seeing Gabby's numbers when she pulled it together for the website because I, I had not anticipated they were necessarily going to be that big. I had not really engaged with the BLM since around 2005 or six, maybe, in any detail other than to get permits to do things. And at that time, I think they were talking numbers around fifty or 60,000. And so the idea that it has actually gotten up more than twice that high was, was really amazing to me. At that point, you know, after around 2000, we weren't doing research work there anymore, but I was taking lots of groups there on field trips. And so we were usually there on, on weekend days, and we would usually get there fairly early. So there wouldn't be much um, presence in the parking area and the trails early on. But yeah, you're coming back out. It could be really difficult because the Slot Canyon is definitely a one-way road. Yeah, <laughs> and and trying to deal with meeting oncoming traffic in the Slot Canyon is really difficult. And the site is managed in partnership with the BLM and the Cochiti Pueblo as part of the proclamation. You have to drive through the Pueblo to reach the Tent Rocks, and the Pueblo has had their gates closed, citing COVID-19 restrictions since 2020. Although almost every place has lifted COVID restrictions up to now, this place does remain closed, partly because they're addressing these over-visitation concerns. The BLM did tell me it's been working on a reopening plan with the Cochiti Pueblo and that we'll likely see changes when it does reopen, maybe things like increased fees, possibly timed ticketing. What sort of changes do you think they should consider in reopening the monument? I'm glad you pointed out the partnership arrangement because that was, if I can go back to a minute to Chris's earlier question about what it was like when the proclamation was put together. What was really impressive, I thought the BLM wanted this to be a partnership from the beginning. That it was going to be a, a partnership with Coach D and it was a partnership with Sandoval County. And so the county took on the responsibility of, of improving and maintaining the road. Cochiti was going to have the opportunity to jointly manage aspects uh, with the BLM and to have the on-site management. So it was an employment opportunity for folks from, from Cochiti and for them to have the opportunity to directly engage with the public and explain the significance of the location to them. 
You know, it's interesting, you know, you point out that things were already stressed before the pandemic in terms of visitation and uh, preservation of resources there. But you think about what we've seen across the West and elsewhere as pandemic restrictions have diminished and what's happened at national, popular national parks, you know, right. reservations and ticketed entry and so forth has become a norm. Mm-hmm. Zion National Park comes to mind for me, just tons of people. And people have sought those outdoor recreational spots. So it seems to me that we're probably learning from um, those national parks and monuments uh, how those systems are working and how to implement them. And, and given the, the, the people stresses on, on Kashikatui tent rocks, it, it makes sense to me to be thinking about some sort of a plan along those lines for that location as well. Have you heard from people who are itching to get back there? Because we know it's, as you mentioned earlier, central to the tourism campaign the word is out for sure. And there's a lot of people that know about this. Have you seen from your perspective that people are itching to get back there? Certainly, um, you know, folks that I know outside of geology who've enjoyed going there hiking, you know, they know that I know about the site. Um, they've asked me about my insights and, you know, I say I know nothing more than, than you do, but I also have a strong passion in photography and I've actually been kind of wanting to get back uh, there to do some photography because all my Photography in the past has been incidental to geology, you know, taking pictures of the rocks. And so my connections with the photography community here in town, folks are saying, you know, can we get together a photographer's trip and go out there? And when's it going to be open? No idea. Yeah. Uh, Geologists have, in part because of trips that I've taken people on in the past, they want to bring their classes there. Um, And so they contact me about, you know, can we go there? No. Uh, in fact, one of my former master's students, uh, his thesis was done um, extensively there at Tent Rocks. He's a professor in Iowa now. And before the pandemic, he always brought his classes out every summer. And so, in fact, I just got a, a note from him a couple months ago as he was planning a summer field course for his students. and says, the website says it's still closed. Is it going to open this summer? And I, says, I wouldn't count on it. Really, the decision seems to be at the feet of the Pueblo, essentially, to figure out how they want to move forward. Um, And I know, Gabby, you tried to speak with Pueblo leaders as well and didn't get a comment on this story. So it's kind of a mystery as to... Well, the Cochiti Pueblo declined. I mean, they knew I was doing the story, but they basically said, you know, we'll let the BLM speak for the area on camera. And the message that the BLM representative told me was that, yeah, they're still working on their business plan and she couldn't give me or wouldn't give me a specific timeline on when the gates would again reopen. But just from how old those hoodoo formations, this is, you know, etched out of the ash of the volcanoes that were once there six, seven million years ago, this landscape What makes this place so unique, you think, like to New Mexico, to the country? And why is it worth seeing up close for somebody who, you know, isn't studying geology necessarily? It is interesting when you think about the geologic landform features that the general public would appreciate it. There's the the hoodoos, um, sometimes also referred to as pedestal rocks because there's usually a big boulder or something at the top of of each one, and you can easily understand that the that that pedestal or hoodoo came about by eroding away the the smaller particles underneath the protective cap rock. Um, there's slot canyons in other places, but it's interesting to see such a picturesque 
uh, sculpted Slot Canyon um, in this immediate proximity to some of the most abundant hoodoo hillsides that you could see anywhere. Uh, The colors are are stunning, particularly in the early and, and later parts of the day. Um, the vegetation is, is sort of the quintessential flora for our part of, of New Mexico. Um, it sits there right at the transition coming out of the valley into the mountains. It just packs a whole lot into a small area. And in, in fact, I'm a little embarrassed as a geologist that I was working there for a number of years before I, I stopped to say, and why just here? Mm. And, and I notice sometimes when I'll be visiting with students or, or visitors that stop to ask us about things because they figure we know something, <laughs> um, they say, well, why just on this one, one hillside? And I now know because I was involved in a geologic mapping project in the 1990s that Coach D uh, uh, cooperated with. We mapped all of Coach D Pueblo and all the area south of the, of the monument. I know that that same geology that we call the Peralta Tuff uh, extends to the south, but obviously in a very uninteresting landscape that is not eroded in the steep slopes um, with hoodoos and slot canyons. And, and it took me a while to, to figure it out, but what adds to the geologic uniqueness, which then makes this such a, a high-intensity, small, scenic spot, is one of the, the largest earthquake-producing faults in the state. Runs right down along the east side of the monument, just to the hair to the east of the Slot Canyon. In fact, splinters off of that fault line cut across the Slot Canyon. And uh, hot water fluids coming down out of the volcanic Jemez Mountains in the past have oozed out of the fault line and into particularly permeable layers there at Tent Rocks. And as the water's cooled, Minerals are precipitated and lightly cemented together particular layers of the rock. And you can see those and, and pieces of that cemented rock in places cause the cap rocks for the hoodoos. And so then I realized that that's, that's the key because those hot water fluids and their ability to lightly cement the material together um, didn't extend very far away from the fault before they cooled and had lost that cementing ability. And... Then the erosion was able to come in. It was kind of like a Goldilocks effect, you know. It's like the stuff is soft and friable, but there's just enough of these hardened layers in there to provide some architectural strength. And so it's just there that all the conditions came together to allow the erosion to make that landscape right at that spot. Wow. (laughs) Just a truly unique dot on the earth, you know, where conditions were right just to see this beautiful sight there. You still go out on hikes, I imagine, explore the geologic wonders of New Mexico. We've talked a lot about this one. We know it is still closed, but you know, are there other places to go explore here in this state that you would tell people to maybe look out for, you know, without us trying to create the next problem of, you know, (laughs) all, all the visitors and stuff, but you know, there are other places. I think what makes Tent Rocks so unique is it's very accessible. Some of the other wonders out there, a little bit rougher to get out to, it sounds like. Certainly, you know, farther away, but still very doable. I think if people really like the idea of the hoodoos, mm-hmm. um, we have other wonderful places on public land in the state uh, to go see hoodoos. 
The uh, probably the best known to people are the Beast Eye Badlands, uh, south of Farmington. Yep, Gabby and I we went there as yeah. well with uh, former colleague Lizzie Mitri and Gabby, your husband Dustin. We all went out there once, checked it out. Beautiful place. There's similar landforms to hike and enjoy that are actually closer to Albuquerque and not as well known. If you head out west of of Cuba on 550. Um, there's a couple of places fairly accessible there. Again, um, BLM-administered uh, wilderness areas. One is the Lybrook Badlands. I've gone out there to look at the geology and take photos, and you usually only see one other person there, if anybody. Ashislepa is a really wonderful place that is south of the, of the community of Nagizi, off of, off of Highway 550, it's the same geology, the same kind of landscape as at Bistai, but much closer to Albuquerque. What's neat about all those places is that you roam on your own. And you just go where you see things that you want to go see and walk up to those hoodoos and look, walk all around them. And There's not really trails that like yeah. tell you, go this way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in fact, I was just responding to a, an inquiry from someone here in the local camera club who wanted to go out to Bistai and wondered if he needed to worry about the fact there were no trails and, and, and finding their way back to the parking area because I knew they had the bushwhack. And I said, well, there's no bushes to whack through. There's, <laughs> there's no vegetation. It's completely wide open. And so as long as when you know you're ready to go, just head down the slope, you will end up at the parking lot. Yeah. So. yeah. That was a concern. We were like, was, okay, yeah. remember this rock formation. <laughs> yeah. Go this way. Oh man, there is a such thing as getting lost when you're hiking. So yeah. know your surroundings, people. And for the fair skinned as well, <laughs> take your sunscreen for sure. Cause to your point, uh, there's no, there's no cover out there. It is yeah. desert for sure. And another place I might mention too, if people like beautiful canyons, particularly with water flowing through them and waterfalls, um, is up at, uh, at Bandelier National Monument. Most people, when they go to the main Frijoles uh, area, head up canyon to see the archaeology. But there's also a trail that heads down canyon to the Rio Grande. And that trail goes through a beautiful canyon with two sizable waterfalls in it. It's, it's a really beautiful hike. And we don't think about seeing waterfalls in New Mexico, but those waterfalls usually persist all the way through the summer. Yeah. I just think it's so cool that we have places like this in New Mexico that are drivable. You can do them in a day trip if you want. And it's really just a vast difference, it seems like, from the urbanized city landscape that a lot of us live in with our day-to-day work schedules. But yeah. thank you, Dr. Smith. We appreciate you coming in and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's always nice to talk about the, the place that was my my first spot I put my rock hammer down on uh, studying geology in New Mexico. Thanks again to Dr. Gary Smith for joining us on the podcast to discuss more of the historical significance and the really geological wonder that is Tent Rocks. Yeah, and if you have any thoughts on where your favorite place to hike is we'd love to hear it you can always reach out to us i'm at chris mckee tv and also chris.mckee at krqe.com and i'm gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburk and i'm on social media thank you all for listening mm-hmm.